My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. No matter where you stand on the earth, clean air and clean water matter. And while billions starve unsheltered, the billionaires cry about cow farts and exhaust pipes, warming the planet, ignoring the solar maximum, ignoring massive industrial pollution, and so-called accidental chemical spills. As trains derail unleashing toxic sludge, the media is bound and gagged by big corporate interests. America burns at a slow simmer, just enough to not wake Sleepy Joe. Today's guest has fallen victim to the drastically polarized idea landscape. He is American author, public speaker, and activist Charles Eisenstein, who joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to explore his ideas on ecology, interdependence, and anti-consumerism. Charles graduated from Yale University, and he has written several books and currently writes on Substack covering a wide range of subjects. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Charles Eisenstein. Ideological distancing, which I referred to earlier when I talked about a, a, a mindset that sees the earth in terms of resources and commodities and not as a living being. I um, like once you adopt that worldview, then, you know, who cares what happens to the Amazon? We can create a technological replacement for the Amazon. We can build carbon sucking machines to suck the carbon out of the air and spray reflective particles into the atmosphere and we can engineer the whole earth. It's, it's, because why not? Like, why should we extend compassion towards something that we don't even really need necessarily if we can, you know, create virtual reality simulations of everything that we've destroyed? And that's why I really took some words from an indigenous person from Colombia in the Kogi Nation. He said, he was talking about the development, quote unquote. I mean, even that word, what does that really mean? Development, but the development of coastal wetlands in Colombia. And he said, if you knew she could feel, you would stop.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And with me today is someone who I booked on Zero so long ago. It's been way too long since, and I should have had him on this show earlier. But without further ado, Charles Eisenstein joins us here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. He is a renegade as far as the topics he goes writing about, you know, got him into a little hot water with the the people that he maybe aligned himself with. I don't want to speak too much for him, but Charles, I think you're right at home here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and and what happened, because if people don't know, you know, you had a somewhat of a, a canceling not too long ago, huh? Yeah, um, I, that, that happened in 2021. Uh, during the peak of the COVID hysteria. And uh, part of the reason why I was canceled is simply for the very reason of calling it a hysteria (laughs) Um, and not like, you know, the greatest calamity of our generation. Um, Although the response to it has made it into arguably the greatest calamity of our generation. But, you know, it it was, I guess it was, it was going to happen because I've had, like, I didn't really change my opinions about anything during COVID. Um, I, I had been an advocate for holistic and alternative medicine for decades, you know, and and um, uh, a skeptic about uh, various medical orthodoxies for decades. And and all of a sudden, the things that that I was saying that used to gain nods of approval from progressives were anathema. And all of a sudden, they became anti-Semitism and white supremacy and all this stuff. And and you know, all of a sudden, I was a Trumper. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty shocking, and but also very revelatory um, about human nature and about the people in my sphere. You know, to see who joins the pile on, who um, uh, keeps their distance uh, and maybe supports me privately. Uh, But of course, I'm not going to speak up because I don't want to be publicly associated with you, you know, and then who actually um, takes the risk to, to um, go against the mob. So, so, yeah, that was, I mean, I could, I could talk more about exactly what I was saying during that time, but it was quite a watershed for me um, that, you know, my, my, my career is very different than it was three years ago. Uh, I'm, I'm not part of the discourse anymore, you know, part of the the intelligentsia in a way, not part of the, the conversation and no longer invited to a lot of the conferences and and, and venues that I had been. Um, and so it's a bit of a, uh, you know, and this I think is true for a lot of people that COVID was a watershed or a crossroads that shook them loose from the direction that they had been headed in and maybe had been stuck in a rut uh, and and trapped by their lives. And here was an interruption, kind of like a intervention in an addict's life. Because uh, in a way, I was kind of addicted to the career that I had had. I didn't feel like I had a lot of power to change my course. And so I think, you know, actually, I think one reason why people were so acquiescent uh, to the lockdowns was because on some level, they wanted a break. They wanted an interruption. They wanted that feeling, everything is different now. And um, so, yeah, you know, the 
I hope I'm not going on too long, but no, also, no, no. the pandemic operated on many levels, um, socially, psychologically. And I think I'm not alone in, in still trying to uh, navigate the uh, new territory that, that it has landed me in. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. And and please don't feel rushed. We uh, we have all the time you need. And I feel like authority and the institution, the educational institution, you know, it, it was easy to maybe early before 2020 to to maybe be swayed by that consensus but it was very quickly revealed that that consensus was merely political and not uh intellectually authoritative maybe that's just my observation but what was that like when you sort of had the realization that the folks that used to value your opinions and your thoughts now had this sort of judge a book by its cover take on you mm -hmm. that shut down any conversation yeah, that was the question I, that I had. I was like, what is going on here? Something, some force is at work that is more primal than, uh, you know, uh, the reasonable disagreements and, and logical arguments. I mean, I was like, what, what is this primal force at work here? And that is what I ended up writing about that, got me, I mean, I was already kind of in hot water with the coronation, which I wrote at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, when a lot of people hadn't really made up their minds yet. So at that point, it was okay to question things that became, you know, party dogma uh, just a few months later. So I, I, I kind of squeaked by with that one. Uh, but when I saw uh, the, the, um, the group think and the mob mentality and the hysteria and and people's like instantaneous willingness to fall into lockstep with whatever they perceived the dominant narrative to be or whatever they perceived the social agreement to be i was like as I, I i started to look into the work of a philosopher renee gerard who wrote about uh sacrificial violence and scapegoating and the process by which um social minorities are dehumanized scapegoated and in former times even ritually sacrificed uh and that wasn't even that long ago uh you know th those are some of the forces that that generated the pogroms against the jews mm -hmm. and the holocaust mm -hmm. uh you you, you, you um dispel social tensions by directing them onto a scapegoat dehumanized subclass right and and you know murder them uh literally or figuratively and i saw that that was that was starting to happen to the unvaccinated they were having associations of being unclean of being just uh horrible people and um then being ostracized uh through social and legal mechanisms and i um i wrote a whole long series of essays about that and and those are the ones that really got me into trouble mm. yeah right yeah and it, it's interesting you know it seems like 
the conspiracy theory community, if we can even call ourselves a community, when I was introduced to this whole worldview, it was very much a left-leaning orientation. You know, Bush was yep. in office, 9-11 had just taken place, people were going against the system, and that system was, for the most part, neocon, right? And right. I grew up at a time when, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders kind of stole our hearts and, and said, yeah, we're going to really do something different this time. And the, the crushing blow to see, you know, him kind of just be... Uh, replaced overnight really for no reason other than uh, the <laughs> superseding agenda that was clearly behind it the whole time. So I, and without I, him even putting up a fight, <laughs> right? Yeah. And Just so put, go ahead. Bent over. Yeah. Yeah. So the disillusionment occurred, you know, more than once for me. So I was a little bit, uh, embarrassed to admit like oh i kind of got swept up in the the trumper thing you know and thinking oh maybe mm -hmm. this guy really is different look at how the media is talking mm -hmm. crap about him consistently maybe he's on to something but even him you know with the uh, uh what do they call it warp speed plan you know yeah. he, he he fed right into that overarching agenda and you start to realize that it, it's it's not uh left versus right you know it's might versus the the meager in a lot of ways yeah. although you know the, the neocons didn't disappear i mean they are uh you know in the biden administration right now oh yeah and in the you know think tanks and in mm -hmm. the institutions in the media so it's not necessarily that that and i know you know this but it's not you know for the listeners who might be paying attention you know it's not that um the neocons were displaced um and it's kind of what happened is that the right morphed into the left mm -hmm. and what we're really looking at is authoritarianism so when we were resisting the bush administration administration and the Bush wars, then we had a natural alignment with his political opponents um, who might have posed as being anti-war. But, uh, you know, they're the same. I mean, the same authoritarians are in power today as as were in power during the, it's just like a different faction of the same the same party, actually. Right. So I think it's really the realignment. I mean, there is a realignment happening right now. And it is instead of right left, it's more authoritarian and and anti-authoritarian. So it kind of unites classic libertarians with with anarchists, you know, which in the past defined the left and the right. And and on some issues, you know, like I'm. Um, <laughs> originally, the words right and left um, were about the politicians on the different sides of the aisle um in the i think it was the you know french assembly uh post-french revolution like it, it it the words originated as uh to indicate political alignments not necessarily ideologies then and you know the left were the ones who were wanted to push the revolution even further they were more radical um, but basically what I'm saying is that the left is whatever the people who call themselves the left say the left is. Right. And that means that that if people who call themselves the left are adopting positions that have traditionally been right wing, such as uh, cheerleading the, the, the big corporations, big tech, big pharma, big agriculture, such as uh, uh, 
revering the uh, intelligence agencies, uh, pushing for more military adventures and more armaments, uh, like all that stuff, like um, supporting the agenda of Wall Street. (laughs) That's what the so-called progressives and liberals are doing today. (laughs) And it's like, newsflash, you are not actually liberals. (laughs) You are conservatives. I mean, you are right wingers and you just, you know, have branded yourself as liberal. And that's not 100 percent true because, yeah, like in terms of like race issues, immigration, um, abortion, like there are there are certain uh, issues in which the traditional alignments still hold. Um, But it's all mixed up right now. And and I I'm I'm like you, I I identify, you know, less and less with any uh, uh, traditional political category. Mm. Yeah, it's like trying to find the the left or right side of a carousel. It's just, it's constantly spinning. You know, there really is no sides of it. But when it comes to this situation we're in, uh, with this left really just being the authoritarian, they seem to have retained some of the maybe less critically thinking uh, who are swept up in this movement that. You've written a lot about, and I really want to spend more time talking about uh, the environment than, than you know, the pandemic, because mm-hmm. we're sort of hopefully past that for now, unless they come up with another excuse. No, we're past it. And yeah. they're not going to be able to do that again. Mm. Nobody gives a shit anymore. Right. You right. know, they try to unveil, you know, Omicron or Kraken. No one cares. <laughs> no one's getting boosted, even if like they won't admit like the general public and the professional classes, they won't admit that they were wrong. They never will. But the enthusiasm is gone and the scare factor is gone. And, and you know, the the elites who are trying to manufacture social crisis in order to further their totalitarian agenda are going to have to find something else. Mm. Well, and it seems like they're, they're shifting it towards this global, so-called global crisis. And I know you've spent a lot of time uh, looking yeah. into this subject. You've talked about this topic of, you know, human society and civilization's relationship with the environment in, in several of your books. And uh, yeah, I think... This kind of wraps into an episode I just released uh, with a gentleman named Tom Blue Wolf, who who spoke to me about the colonial mindset and how this mm-hmm. sort of agriculture has diverged us from this organic, natural relationship we once had with nature into this um, really sort of parasitic relationship with nature what, what do you think about that and 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 yeah maybe we can um, I, you know I, I i have definitely looked into that um line of thinking starting with uh years ago i was reading daniel quinn and and derek jensen and john zerzan like kind of radical anti-civilization thinkers uh who argued that agriculture was a huge error and set the stage for all other forms of uh, exploitation. You know, first we exploit the land, we domesticate the animals, and eventually we do it to ourselves and everything. And I think there's another way to look at agriculture, though, as a kind of a co-evolution and a symbiosis. Um, All animals um, change their environment. They change the ecosystem that they are in. And, and ultimately, that's what agriculture is. And I think the problem is really the industrial model of agriculture and the mindset that holds us separate from nature, that 
and that thinks of nature as just a bunch of stuff, a bunch of resources to exploit, and soil as just a bunch of chemistry on the ground, uh, and but not something alive and not something that's really part of ourselves. So my environmental writings are all based on the idea, first, that we are inseparable from nature, and secondly, that that we are not the only intelligence on this earth and not the only consciousness on this earth, and that our thriving requires um, deep, intimate relations with all the rest of life, such as soil and water and forests and, and insects and all the plants and animals. And when we do that, we will ourselves become more alive, even if you can't measure that so much in terms of uh, you know, total calories per hectare or something like that, um, or or in terms of GDP, but it's the, the it's the, the the sense that that you know when you look at a denuded landscape or a devastated ecosystem or a giant strip mine or quarry, something hurts inside. Like when we lay waste to nature, we create an inner wasteland too. And that I want to rec- in my so I, I wrote a book on climate actually, and part of my argument was we have to stop arguing for we have to change or we're going to perish. We have to tap into our love of nature, and and our and and to understand it as an organism, to understand the planet as an organism, to. Um, defuse this again it's a kind of a hysteria that tries to focus all of the blame for the current ecological situation on one thing which is carbon dioxide or or greenhouse gases it's the same mindset actually as the pandemic where we have 50 years of declining health autoimmunity depression addiction anxiety allergies like obesity right uh over the course of my lifetime, chronic disease rates have gone from like 3% to 50%. And we don't know what to do about that. There's no easily identifiable enemy to attack. There's not some quantity or some bad guy that we can blame. But there's this tremendous anxiety and a feeling something's really wrong here. And now COVID-19 comes along, SARS-CoV-2 or whatever, and everybody is so eager to focus their energy on the culprit with this kind of irrational unconscious belief that if only we can control this disease we'll all be healthy again so same thing like with with climate change like i do think that the climate is uh spinning out of control uh all kinds of extreme events flooding and droughts and heat and cold and disrupted weather patterns and boy wouldn't that be nice if we could affix all the blame onto one thing, the one thing that happens to be easily measurable and easily monetizable, and that fits in very well with certain political and economic agendas, you know, and we can create carbon markets and derivatives based on those and and investment opportunities. Wouldn't it be nice if we could solve all the problems, all the all the all the ecosystem degradation with that one thing? Uh uh-uh. uh. No, the cause of the climate crisis is the destruction of the organs of the living being we call Earth, the destruction of the forests, 
of the soil, of the water, of the whales, of the fish, of the estuaries, of the seagrass meadows, of the wetlands. You, you, you damage all your organs, and yeah, your body temperature is going to fluctuate. You're going to get thirsty. You're going to get bloated. I mean, all kinds of things are going to happen. Same thing. Like, like you cut down the forests, you drain the wetlands, and the water no longer soaks into the earth. And it runs off, and there's your flood. And then it's gone. And, and it's not available to be pulled up um, by the plants to be transpired into the atmosphere to generate the rainy season. Now you have a drought. And it's because you've cut down the forests. It's because you've developed the wetlands. It's because you've destroyed the soil. It's because you've you've removed the apex predators that keep the ecosystem healthy. But you don't have to blame any of those things. You can blame some global quantity um, and install some solar panels on your roof and imagine that you are solving the problem. So sorry if I'm being a little bit vehement about this, but um, I'm an environmentalist, you know, like I love life. I love this earth. And it's not like I'm getting a paycheck from ExxonMobil to say these things. I want to actually devote this, this love that is, that, that is at the bottom of the environmental movement towards solutions that actually work, you know, because mm, they're being co-opted. They're being diverted onto these techno fixes that could cause a lot more harm than, I mean, they are causing more harm than good in the case of like the, the electric economy and stuff and the, the lithium mining and the nickel mining and the cobalt and the, the rare earths and the silver. <laughs> I mean, horrible, horrible what's being done in the name of saving the planet. Right. We put ourselves in a position where we create a problem and then another problem in effort to create a solution, which never gets to the root cause of the original problem. It just expands the problems into this net that all goes back to this cognitive dissonance. And you know, it's easy to maybe blame, uh, let's say, religion or uh government, but there is something psychologically different about human beings who live in a sort of civilization as we know it in the modern world and people who live in a very rural, maybe even indigenous uh, situation where their life is inextricably connected to their immediate environment, right? We've separated ourselves yeah. enough We've put enough layers between ourselves and the dirt and the trees and the animals to where now we have this sort of um, this itch inside of us that that needs to be scratched. And we scratch it by, you know, this self-destructive impulse. And, and I wonder if there's mm -hmm. something um, philosophically or psychologically you've identified specifically that that may be um, underlying this problem. I think partly it's just what you said, just the distancing. You know, if if we are uh, people of the land and and really connected to place and living in a local economy, then if we're engaging in destructive practices, we'll see them. We'll see the results. But when you go to the store to purchase your new iPhone or you know order it online, you don't see the devastation that its production causes. So partly, this is just a matter of distancing. Um, it's not only, though, a physical and technological distancing. It's also an ideological distancing, which I referred to earlier when I talked about a, a, a mindset that sees the Earth in terms of resources and commodities and not as a living being. I, um, 
like once you adopt that worldview, then, you know, who cares what happens to the Amazon? We can create uh, a technological replacement for the Amazon. We can build carbon sucking machines to suck the carbon out of the air and spray reflective particles into the atmosphere and we can engineer the whole earth. It's it's because why not? Like, why should we extend compassion towards something that we don't even really need necessarily if we can, you know, create virtual reality simulations of everything that we've destroyed? And that's why I, I uh, really took some words from a Kogi, um, an indigenous person from Colombia um, in the Kogi nation, who said he was talking about the uh, the the development, quote unquote. I mean, even that word. What does that really mean? Development, making it, but the development of coastal wetlands um, in Colombia. Mm. And he said, if you knew she could feel, you would stop. If you knew she could feel, you would stop. And I thought, yeah, like any time that we commit violence against something, somebody, it is facilitated by a story that first reduces them with a human, it dehumanizes them. Like if you if you have dehumanized somebody into the status of an enemy or like some subhuman racial category or something, then you feel um, at liberty to exploit them or to, to abuse them or destroy them. And the same thing with nature. If we see it as less than sacred and less than conscious and less than a being, a beautiful, precious being that actually feels what we're doing to it, then it's a lot easier to harm it. Just as if you objectify women, it's a lot easier to do them harm than if you're really like tuned into what is she feeling right now. Like then it's pretty hard. If you're tuned into that, then, you know, her pain is your pain. And and so I think the Kogi really identified what has to happen for us to, as a civilization, relate to this earth in a different way. We have to accept her as a being and um, learn to, to, and tune in to, to, to what this being is feeling. And it starts with that, with that idea. Yeah. Earth is a being, you know? Um, and maybe it doesn't start with an idea. Maybe it starts with experiences that, that, you know, I mean, people have these experiences sometimes just spontaneously in nature or through psychedelics or um, in any number of ways. But, but that is the core of the shift in our relationship to Earth. Mm. Right. And and I guess scholars or academics would describe that as mythic consciousness, the idea that, you know, everything around us is living and, and you know, Long ago, people actually thought that way. You know, they thought the mountain was a being with a life. You know, now we think of a, a, a mountain <clears throat> as a pile of rocks that some guy can climb up to the top of and plant a flag mm -hmm. on, right? And and I'm sure right. that this Kogi elder you described would disagree with that as well. And I do too. I think we need to bring the mythic conscious back into um, common sense and and maybe that common sense will come back to the people because we, we have this instinct or, or impulse uh, as modern thinkers to categorize everything. And I think this is a, a byproduct of that same civilization that 
we're a part of, you know, this sort of classification of all the living beings until they become meaningless, right? They're just mm -hmm. f finite points in a web. They're not, they, you know, we don't think of the web anymore. We think of, you know, it's like the forest for the trees, that old cliche. Yeah. And, and right. When we categorize them, then they become generic examples of a category and not unique, precious individuals. Mm. So that is part I mean, it's not, and I'm not saying we should never name things, but reducing them to generic examples of a category is kind of like the precursor to reducing the 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 earth into standardized commodities, and that's really what industry does. You know, industry depends on standardization and, and uniformity of of products and processes. And, you know, I'm not like saying that we should have no industry uh, and make everything by handcraft. I think all of our gifts as human beings, all of our capacities are here for a reason. But I can say that the industrial model of production and of thought has exceeded its proper domain. Mm. And we start need to start asking the question, what parts of life do we want to standardize and and industrialize and automate and quantify and what parts of life actually should remain in the realm of the intimate and the relational and the qualitative uh, and that's closely related to the question of how far should money extend into human interaction mm. like because because you know, it's, it has encroached farther and farther into our relationships. Um, and that's, uh, that's a whole other um, domain that I, that I thought a lot about. But um, yeah, that's, that's, that, that's the question. You know, it's not like, okay, industry or, or standardization or categorization or naming is the sin and we have to wipe it clean and go back to a time where we didn't have agriculture or didn't have nouns. Um, it's it's to bring consciousness and choice to how and when we use these tools. That's called maturity. To be to to bring into conscious choice that which we had been unconsciously doing, and then to thereby um, put order to our world. I choose this. I choose not that. Yeah. You got my mind racing now on, on where we need to, to get rid of industry and standardization. I would say agriculture, right? Because we, we get rid of these big farms and you create the, the need for smaller farms. And, you know, we can give all of these homeless people uh, a job at the very least picking fruit. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it's a very simple, simple uh, solution, uh, it seems, but I'm sure it would take a right. lot. But uh, I've worked at farmers markets and I've seen how that can bring a community together. And yeah, mm -hmm. if, if more people had a garden and, and a farm in their neighborhood, maybe there wouldn't be uh, as many trucks on the road. And, and, you know, all of these things can start to even out, right? We're not saying, oh, truckers mm -hmm. are bad. And I think, yeah, industry still does serve a purpose. But if we could do that local 
shift of instead of depending on Mexico for all of our produce and all of these other, you know, places for, you know, corn and, and, and soy just coming from one place, you know, like you've driven through the, the Midwest, you'll see yeah. it's all soy or it's all corn or it's all, you know, who knows what, but it's monocropped. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's leading to this incredibly uh, precarious situation. I mean, what does that, how does that have an effect on our climate? Have you looked into mono? Oh yeah. Monocrop? Yeah. No, I think you're right though. I think, I think that agriculture is a pretty good place to start with deindustrialization. Uh, Cause after all, that's kind of where it got started. You know, the, the first industrial model were the ancient mass societies like Egypt, you know, where, where um, they built huge machines out of human parts, essentially and began this process of standardization. Um, so yeah, like, um, life gets a lot richer when we participate in the production of food and where we know the people who are producing our food and forge those relationships and, and our diet gets better actually as well. And the food tastes better and like everything is better that way. And maybe it takes more labor, you know, like to plant your own garden takes a few hours a week. Whereas the amount of food you get in those few hours a week, you know, it's probably 10 or 20 bucks worth of food a week at most. So you're only paying yourself $5, six, $7 an hour by spending all that time in the garden. It's not worth it. Is it by that? kind of arithmetic it's not worth it it's less efficient but that's the thing is um is efficiency our god is the quality of life a function of more of something you can measure because when you grow your own food or share it with your neighbors you're getting something that you cannot measure like that that just like, for example, the experience of having your hands in the soil, that feeling of connection to, to a place. You can't buy that with money. So as for climate change, you asked that. Um, an awful lot of what... Okay, so if, if, you, if you take just the carbon lens, um, you probably know that, that regenerative practices can sequester huge amounts of carbon in the soil. It, it, I, I did a calculation in my book and, and basically uh, calculated that, that if we converted something like half of the world's agricultural lands to regenerative practices, we could offset all carbon emissions. But I don't really take the carbon lens. Um, and I think that the, um, the effects of good land stewardship are much more powerful when you look at it in terms of water and not carbon. And I think if there's, if there is a substance, a one thing that we should affix, that we should direct most of our attention to, and I don't think that there's a one thing, but if there were, it would be water. That's the, the, the most sacred of, these, of all the substances on earth. So through the water lens, uh, proper land stewardship is tremendously beneficial because i mentioned it before like like the the rain is able to 
um, penetrate into the soil and reach the aquifers and the aquifers rise and springs flow and trees can can draw on that water and they they um put it back into the atmosphere and it condenses and when it does so it releases heat by the way out into space so even like plants cool the the, the earth um but it also then increases the rains and it creates a more moderate climate and you don't have the floods and the droughts um i i was uh I was I spoke at an event in Kansas um, a few months ago, last year it was, and uh, the 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 farmer um, was describing the he he did um, what are they called infiltration tests on his on his soil, and compared conventionally farmed soil before he had a chance to like improve it and heal it, and it took. Um, I think it was 45 minutes for one inch of water to soak in. And then after he had improved the soil and made it healthy, you know, which takes years or even decades, it took 45 seconds. Wow. 45 minutes. I mean, you're going to have like sheets of water on top of the soil and it's going to evaporate quickly or run off. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to have like that cracked parched earth and it never soaks in. And so the springs go dry and the wells go dry. And this is happening all over the Midwest. Like the, the well that grandpa dug is dry now. You have to dig a deeper one and a deeper one and a deeper one. And meanwhile, they're getting poisoned by agricultural chemicals and you can't even drink the water from your own well. And all of that can be reversed with proper soil stewardship. And and that's, you know, I mean, we could go into more detail about that, but but it's really flood and drought that are that that deliver the biggest impact to human beings when you're talking about climate mm. it's not temperature so much right well and, and it seems like they use temperature and carbon to keep people off of the the actual problem in order to belay the uh, situation and you know fund whatever uh, horseshit excuse my language that they want to uh, make a couple dollars off of it in this case it seems like pollution uh, and polluting the water and polluting the soil with chemicals is the real issue but they don't they don't use that word because now, you know, corporations are liable. Who's liable? Well, we have the U.S. military, the number one polluter, uh, I think, in the world, if not just this country. Um, and the whole military industrial complex bleeds into this agricultural system, too, in many ways. And, and I think that's mm -hmm. where, you know, when you start to parse a lot of this through, you realize, and I've heard you say this before, that our society is anti-life. Uh, and I think it's because maybe these well-intending people are taking the wrong approach and they've invested so much into this wrong approach that now they, they're, they're either too, you have too much hubris to admit it or they just can't uh, admit it because they lose everything they've worked for. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, the economic aspect is very important. Um, I, I, yeah, and I do think about that some, but I think more important is just the basic ideology, the basic belief systems 
about how the world works and what's alive and what isn't. And, um, you know, if you take for granted the basic concept that the earth is a gigantic machine uh, with all of these chemical and physical geological processes, then you're going to treat it like a machine. If you have a, a um, perception that Earth is not alive, then you're going to treat it as not alive. Our perceptions are very powerful. The way that we see things and the way that we treat things becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if we see the Earth is dead and we relate to it as dead, then it's going to end up being dead. So I think that that now that that mindset is also very profitable because it facilitates the extraction of resources and the dumping of wastes and so forth. If you don't think that she can feel so it, it's also very profitable. And it's true that that people tend to be attracted to the beliefs that are convenient for them to believe that that coincide with their self-interest. Mm. So I think that. So yes, there is an, an alignment between powerful corporate interests and a uh, worldview that holds the earth as not alive and conscious and sacred. However, ultimately, it's not actually in anybody's interest. Like I say, you know, it seems like, oh, you're profiting from that, right? Well, the corporation is profiting from it, but the corporation is made up of people. And ultimately, yeah, you might get a really high salary for, you know, presiding over a corporation that ruins land. But are you really happy doing that? Do you are you fulfilled doing that? Do you believe in what you're doing? Are you proud of your contribution to this earth? And a lot of people are waking up to um to the realization that it's not really in my interest to do this. That there's a, a new consciousness awakening everywhere, including in the corporations, including in the military, including in high political circles. And these people, they've they, many of them have had a real change of heart and a shift in consciousness. Mm. And they then feel trapped in the institutions that they preside over. And they realize <laughs> That they're not actually that powerful they were only powerful as administrators as functionaries of a system but when they want to try to change the system they're not powerful they're no more powerful than anybody else right. well they're infinitely divinely powerful too but but their their power you know the power of a corporate executive or uh, a senator you know or a president is defined and created and permitted by the system that they are in and if they deviate too far from the requirements of that of that job description they will be ejected and somebody new will come in who's more compliant and so a lot of a lot of our so-called leaders are actually in a state of turmoil right now mm. they want to do something different and they don't know how to begin and they show up in Congress every day and they're like, this is crazy, but I can't let anyone know that I think that. <laughs> I mean, I know for a fact 
that there are governors and Congress people who are sitting in ayahuasca circles. Like, um, like this, and but how would you know that? <laughs> it could be even the case, and I know this isn't true, but it could be that every single person in Congress secretly has like this other life, but nobody dares show it. No one dares admit it. And this is kind of the situation on earth right now, that nobody believes in the system that that almost everybody pretends to believe in. It is an appearance of of unanimity, an appearance of agreement, but it's not actually agreement. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I hope you're right. I mean, that is fascinating. I, a lot of people, at least in this community, speculate on the secret lives of Congress people and senators, and it's it's usually not as uh, polite as ayahuasca circles. But oh no, I mean that's sure, their a lot speculations, of are, at least. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean surely some of them are you know attending satanic rituals too, uh, but but right. you know I that, that's another like that particular conspiracy theory that you know there is again it's like there is one thing to blame for everything mm. one key to solving everything to solving every problem it's the same mindset as it's a virus <laughs> right. that's making everybody sick in the world you know or it's it's co2 like it's the the illuminati like the, the, it, it simplifies things in a way that disturbs me I love that you said that. That's yeah. the medicine that we need uh, more of. And I know I, I try to keep it balanced on this show, but yeah, there's been guests on this show who could use that advice. And I've heard you say that, you know, the elites uh, are more like puppets of the system than puppet masters themselves in some ways. And you just kind of yeah. described that dilemma that some of our maybe awakened peers in those positions are feeling. But yeah, let's hope that they can uh, turn the tide. Do you think that the system, you know, uh, is this sort of mind of its own in a way, like a being in itself, almost like how some uh, esotericists describe an egregore where it's... A... It is. Okay. Yeah, it's an egregore. Um, it is our, our our system, and I would even call it our mythology, the mythology of separation, the separate self in a world of other, separate from nature, the soul separate from the flesh, you know, this this whole paradigm of separation and all the systems on top of it, they are together a being that has contained much of humanity for a long time. We've had experiences within that story, um, and we've developed capacities within it uh, for good and for ill. And I believe that that particular system and story is nearing the end of its lifetime. And we are going to transition into something else. And it might be a uh, rocky transition, and there's no guarantee that we'll make it through. But um, yeah, the, the, see, this is, I guess it might be a little bit subtle here, but, and also I'll say at the beginning, like I, do fully accept that, you know, uh, human trafficking rings and so forth penetrate much, much higher into the global elites than 
we are let let on to know. Okay, I, I accept that. But the question for me is, uh, is there like a central controller of everything? Uh, everything is happening. You know, everything's planned out. Um, and I think that that you know, it, it's kind of intellectually convenient or satisfying to believe that because it eliminates the the mystery and the 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 um, uncertainty and almost the terror of a world that does not have intelligence imposed on it from the outside but that is itself intelligent so when when events coagulate around a certain narrative is that because they are being planned out and executed according to that narrative or could it be through the action of synchronicity like when and and you know the origin of our current concept of synchronicity was carl jung who noticed things like you know he'd be doing a psychoanalytic session with a patient and the patient would be telling him about a dream of ancient egypt where they wore these scarabs and then like a scarab beetle like flies into the window uh in new york city or something like they're completely like i mean okay so how do you explain that was there like some conspiracy to send that beetle just at the time that that guy was having that no it, it it's that that the the world and its events are not just like this random thing they, there is an intelligence that um cooperates with human beliefs and human choices and human states of being so it's very hard to disentangle um a conscious conspiracy with the uh crystallization of events around a state of consciousness and a narrative it's hard to disentangle them and i and i i do think that that there are conspiracies you know i i think that i think that 9 11 was you know i don't know which of the there's something really fishy about it the kennedy assassinations uh i mean a lot of the conspiracies are well documented you know cointelpro uh the infiltration of environmental organizations and the anti-globalism movement and and the civil rights movement uh i mean it used to be the, the left that was indignant about conspiracies because it was like the fbi and the cia destroying their movements again and again and again like these things happened you know operation mockingbird i mean they're they're well documented um anyway i i just wanted um I, i'm not sure if i could make my point clear here but that human okay it's this human beings are not the sole source of order organization and intelligence in the world and the um so when i say the elites are puppets even the highest elites they are puppets of what you were saying like this this system that is a being unto itself this story which comes with a set of archetypes too it's a mythology that is that is the puppet master and its systems are the puppet master and you take somebody and you put them in a different setting and they behave completely differently and in a way all of us are 
administrators of this system. We're all the Illuminati in some sense, like doing things that we would not do in another setting, like such as always trying to get the best deal. When you go on online to buy something and you compare prices and you choose based on price, like you're not thinking of, well, the person producing this is a human being and maybe I should buy the more expensive one so that they can make a decent profit and support their family. Like that's usually not the way that we think when, when you're in, it's like, I, I, I give the example of uh, musical chairs. You, you, you take it like, you know, the game where there's, you know, maybe say a hundred people and 95 chairs. Mm. And when the music stops, everyone scrambles for a chair and whoever doesn't get a chair, they're out. And, and I say, imagine if you had a game of musical chairs and the consequence of not getting a chair it's not only that you are out of the game. Let's say you then have to choose between food and medical care and you lose your house and your kid. Let's make the game interesting. Okay. Let's make there be real consequences. Well, then you look at how people behave and there's a lot of pushing and shoving and the strongest and the quickest get the chairs and the, the, the disadvantage there, you know, shit out of luck. And, and you look at that and you're like, God, human nature, it's terrible. But is that human nature or is that the response to the rules of the game? What happens if you have 100 people in 100 chairs? Then you have very different behavior. Maybe you still have some competition and some trading because all the chairs are different and everybody's butt is different. And, you know, I'd like to high chair and you like a low chair and there's still an, an economy. I mean, I, I developed this metaphor to explain the financial system where there's always more debt than there is money. So we are always in excessive competition beyond what is natural. We're in an artificially scarce environment. So that's just like one example of how human nature changes depending on the context that we are in and how we are all puppets in a way of a system that we're just dimly conscious of but that is losing its grip yeah yeah i hope so because this artificial scarcity i mean it has serious effects even on people who are well-meaning i mean i had a brick thrown through my car a month ago and you know if if this person maybe was on the the right side of this uh, scarcity, they wouldn't have felt the need to to have this uh, you know altercation with me, right? This alter uh, altered playing field that we're all all on right now, due to that artificial scarcity, it causes people to treat each other uh, in a very dark way, you know, me versus them, you know, us versus them, even. It's it's has very um, you know real effects, but you know a lot of it gets swept under the rug, and people are like, well, yeah, that's a bad neighborhood, or oh yeah, there's a lot of yeah. homeless people there, and you, know, you kind of just shrug these things off and do your best to avoid them. But when you look at the people who are actually trying to mitigate those situations, help the homeless, or defend uh and lock up criminals you know defend people and lock up criminals they tend to exacerbate the problem more than they do solve it and i think you know this has a lot to do with what you just described more than 
uh, it does anything else. And that's why a lot of these attempts to uh, mediate a situation end up making things worse. Yeah, because we're always attacking the symptom mm, right. and not the cause, you know. Right. And sometimes you have to deal with symptoms, but if you only attack the symptom and never look at the cause, then you will be in a state of endless war. Hmm. You know, if you think that the cause of terrorism is terrorists and you just constantly are trying to drone the terrorists and kill the terrorists, you're going to get crop after crop of terrorists. If you think that the cause of crime is criminals and you never look beyond that, then you're never going to try to never going to change the conditions that breed crime. And, and the antidote to that is first to ask, what would it take for me to be a criminal? What would it take for me to be an illegal immigrant? What would it take, like, what would be those conditions, say, that, that would prompt me to uproot my entire life and take enormous risks and risk being trafficked and be away from my children and my family and go with no security to work at hard labor in another country? Like, what? What, what would those conditions have to be? And then the next question is, what can I do to change those conditions? If I don't want there to be crime or, you know, illegal migration or something like that, um, how can I be part of a change of conditions and not have to always be fighting the symptom and building walls and building prisons and waging wars, you know? We can do better than this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I hope we can move past the, the us versus them. It seems to stem from, uh, at least from what I've researched, uh, in the intellectual world, Hegel and this guy, Char uh, George Hegel, who inspired a lot of uh, what became the fascists that, you know, destroyed Europe in a lot of ways. And, uh, I wonder if that still exists in the, the philosophy of the elite, this sort of state is superior to all. We make the state the god of the people, and that's how we'll rule. I mean, that was a different aspect of Hegel's uh, philosophy, but it seems to have informed a lot of the uh, antagonists that we're describing throughout this conversation, this, uh, this philosophy born out of Germany there. Yeah, uh, I mean, that, you know, that would be getting into some pretty heavy philosophy, uh, Hegel. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I generally don't like to blame things on any particular philosopher. You I know, sense they, that, yeah. Well, and I don't like to blame yeah. things either. I, I feel like I'm just kind of be cornering myself into that because I don't know any other yeah. way to, to broach the topic with you. But uh, but yeah, I, I, I would like to know your thoughts on, on that. Philosophers, they give voice to emerging ideas of their time mm. and i guess the the you know when hegel was working um that was like the the full flush of the nation state that had emerged fairly recently you know and um is I mean, it was it was new. You know, the nation state really only emerged as a concept maybe in the 16th century, um, and I think that is another story that is becoming uh, infirm. 
and reaching the end of its lifespan um, as like the primary uh, primary locus of human organization, um, the 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 dominant um, level of organization. Mm. I think that in a healthy planet, we would tradition tr- transition to communities and bioregions. Um, and it wouldn't be that nations, peoples, cultures on a bigger level would disappear. It just wouldn't be the primary unit of organization. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I think that the, that, you know, philosophers who took it for granted as the um, highest expression of civilization were just voicing the zeitgeist. Right. Yeah, that's important to keep in mind. We can't blame any individuals. This is sort of uh, definitely a trope amongst the conspiracy theories. Try to pin it all on one person. And yeah, it it ends up being, uh, ends up turning more people off to this notion, uh, which is important, you know, in a lot of ways. I think too many people go with the status quo and they don't think about uh you know where the world can be a better place and and maybe that's meant to be i mean have you heard the concept of npc do you put much thought into that concept it seems to be Uh popular these days and and i wonder if there's a sort of uh philosophical sort of it's built in philosophically to humans i mean it seems like could have been npcs in the past they were just you know people who uh didn't do much you know I, I, what do you think about npcs well uh i appreciate the metaphor uh having grown up playing dungeons and dragons uh version one by the way um and uh however i it just feels like a little bit um kind of contemptuous mm. of others, you know, like people have lives, people right. have their, each person is an entire universe unto themselves and they're living out their story and it is meaningful to them. And in some sense, um, necessary for the evolution of all of humanity. Every, every story must be told. Every play must be acted out. Every storyline, um, every experience must be had by somebody. And, um, but yeah, like a lot of people are, are mindless of, um, the ways that the system and its puppets, the elites control society. Um, but, you know, I think everybody is asleep to some things Mm. and aware of other things. I don't think that that I could I could put it this way. Yes, the world is divided between the two types of people, the asleep and the awakened. And the way you can tell which category somebody is in is that if you think that there are just two types of people in the world, the asleep and the awakened, then you are one of the asleep. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I, I think that uh 
It is contemptuous, and and that's why I try to raise the point on this show about NPCs and and get different opinions because everybody's special. But then again, nobody's special, right? I mean, everybody's yeah. special and nobody's special at the same time. Like you know, I, I do this sometimes. Like like I'll be at the airport or something, you know, and I'll look at the employee at Sabaro mm. or Chick Fil A or something like that, and usually it's a kind of glum wooden looking person, usually somewhat overweight, you know, looking kind of depressed, like, and I'm, I'm like, I'll look at that person and I will hit the rewind button to the point when they were one or two or six months old and the cutest little thing with um, uh, uh, an expectation of a magical experience in this world and and all of the curiosity of a baby and all of the the unguarded openness of a baby and i mean any baby you, you know you, you you can almost not love a baby and i think what happened to this person that their dreams were shattered that their spirit was brutalized that they were that they were like that, that all of their hopes and their dreams of the child and what am i going to do when i grow up and what am i going to be and now they're like 36 years old working at Sabaro. Like, I'm like, when I go into that, I'm like, I'm like, hey, brother, I'm sorry. And I will do what I can to create a different kind of world. But it's, I, and I think that if we do not cultivate the, 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 the vision, the gaze of, my brother, my sister. We're not actually going to be able to create a better world. We're going to be missing something. Hmm. And that dismissal of others, that writing off of other people, that contempt will show up in everything that we create. And we will create some other version of what we already have. Hmm. We need to create from a consciousness of, of, universal brotherhood of man you know of of not just as a spiritual ideology but the actual practice of seeing that you are a child of god as i am thank you yeah absolutely i i'm not alone in in, in saying that i probably dismiss people and and yeah i'm sure we all have but uh it's something yeah, it's that a habit that we've been inculcated with you know and, right. and yeah, right. together maybe we can awaken from it. Well, yeah, and it starts with recognizing yeah. it, right? And and not being ashamed of it because uh, everyone has felt that uh in the inverse too. I mean, other people have yeah. have dismissed anyone at, at some point in your life, listeners, yourself, Charles, me. Um speaking of which, I'm so fascinated by your story and how you um started at Yale because I have this massive prejudice against Yale growing up in, you know, this area and just sort of feeling like, uh, you know, they're kind of a, a pariah on the town. And uh, I, there's a, so many amazing things that have been accomplished by that school. Don't get me wrong. I don't negate that. Uh, but I, I do want to know, you know, what your experience was like there because uh, you were 
in Yale at a sort of different time period than the time period I'm researching. And I've talked to other Yale graduates on this show, um, and their experiences have varied quite a ton because it is a very segmented school. Like if you're in the law school, you're in the law school. You don't, you know, fraternize with the people in the drama school. At least that's what the folks in the drama school told me. But anyways, yeah. what, what was your experience like there? I mean, well, I was there as an undergraduate. And okay. so this was like the late 80s um, uh, before academia became so ideological. Mm. Um and I was miserable at Yale for most of my time there. Um, I felt very alienated, um, never really fit in, um, never really like, I was always half-hearted about succeeding there. Cause I was like, I was like, hold on, do you really care about grades? You know, is this really like the whole value system? I didn't fully buy into it. Hmm. Um, I, I enjoyed my classes for the most part, um, studied mathematics and philosophy. And I was, um, you know, I liked my classes. Um, I liked my classes. Yeah. I'll, I'll say that, but I had other priorities, like social needs that were not being met. I was very, I was very lonely. I didn't have a lot of friends until finally, like my senior year. Also, I was like really kind of young and immature. I started when I was 17 and I, I was like socially and, and, you know, I reached puberty late. So I was like, you know, kind of the equivalent of a 15 year old or a 16 year old um, when I, I entered <laughs> in terms of like physical development, you know, mm. um, I, mean, I was like this adolescent, you know, mm. and, uh, finally by my senior year, I got, um, you know, really deep in with the, I was on the track team and the cross country team and, and, that provided a lot of, a lot of joy for me. Um, and, uh, but I basically couldn't wait to get out of there. Um, and you know, from there, I just totally left not only academia, but the United States of America too. Wow. I just like went off to Taiwan and spent the next nine years there. It was awesome. Yeah. I loved it. Tell yeah. Us I mean, it was, it. it was kind of, it was like really polluted and stuff, but, um, when I first got there, it was still under martial law, uh, as a, you know, vestige of the war against the Chinese communists, right. you know, in, in 1940, in the 1940s. Um, but, uh, it was, there was so much freedom there. Hmm. Like you could like going into business could be as simple as like setting up a, a laying out a blanket and selling stuff on, on, on a sidewalk. Hmm. Like, like you could pretty much do anything. Um, there was just no red tape or regulation or anything. So it was, it was, I loved that sense of freedom and, and people were, I mean, I could, I could talk for hours about Taiwan. Um, there, there was, it wasn't like the, the, uh, old agrarian culture was still present to some degree. Um, people were coming from almost a different universe. It was very recently modernized. And there were a lot of customs and traditions that were still intact from the old days. Mm. Um, and that was fascinating. And, and I, you know, came into contact with Taoism and Buddhism and Qigong, you know, and Chinese medicine and, and also like kind of folk, folk Taoism and superstitious thinking and, and like 
you know, things like ghosts were not even like weird. I mean, they were accepted as part of reality by everybody. Right. So I, I really got, um, you know, had a, a powerful formative influence on me to, to step into a worldview that did not share what I had considered to be, you know, universal agreement about what is real. Mm. So it, it, it helped me step outside of my cultural conditioning and, and to question everything. That's wonderful. Yeah. We've had Peter Jenks on the show before, and he's written a book called Occult Thailand. And uh, although that book deals with just Thailand, he described a, a bunch of different Asian cultures uh, through the book uh, and yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Some of the lore, um, one thing that stood out to me was that each city in Thailand has its own like guardian spirit, right? Mm -hmm. uh, was there any experiences you had with folk Taoism, like uh, anything spooky or, or uh, maybe informative, like a lesson from somebody, a synchronicity? Um, well, my 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 girlfriend and, and then wife at the time um, was very afraid of ghosts and had some really spooky experiences that um, I was only peripherally involved in. Um, but one apartment we lived in, like there were like all these really weird noises, like a light flicking on and off and on and off, like a light switch, um, like like all the time, like. And there were some really spooky things. Like she like saw like saw this like man, you know, in our apartment from time to time. Um, you know, who wasn't actually there. Like, you know, when I went out, he wasn't there. <laughs> in Taiwan, that's like you're not like crazy if you think that. Right. You know, if you like I, I once took a taxi ride. And the driver told me about like this really spooky experience he had where he like picked up a woman wearing like wedding clothes, like, you know, all in, in like red, red, I mean, in, in Taiwan, you wear red if you're the bride, um, like this beautiful wedding garb, but kind of old fashioned, a beautiful wedding garb and gave him an address in the old part of town. And it was like the middle of the night. He's like, he was kind of like baffled. Like, why is somebody taking a taxi to a wedding in the middle of the night? And he got to the address or where the address should be, but that building didn't exist. There was no address there. And he turned to look back at the back seat, you know, to ask. And the woman was gone. And then he got the heebie jeebies, you know. Um, so he said he had to go to a, uh, Taoist priest to perform an exorcism and you know to clear out the bad energy in his taxi cab yeah uh, bef before he could take more customers you know like so i mean <laughs> the way he spoke of it though was more like it wasn't like he wasn't afraid i would think he was weird like it was culturally accepted that that kind of thing happens sometimes yeah you know and if your taxi's infested with bed bugs and you have to go to a fumigator and if it's infested with a ghost uh, like then you have to go to a Taoist priest you know it's like <laughs> it was in that category of normality mm. uh, i don't know if it's still like that there you know because as modernity has overtaken the place along with it comes 
um, the worldview of modernity, which does not have a place for, you know, the discarnate spirits of uh, brides who probably died tragically, um, you know, decades ago. Like, like that is not part of admissible reality. Mm. Um, but I think that we need to start admitting some of these uh, excluded, banished aspects of the human experience. We need to start admitting them back into reality because if we do not, this planet has no chance. If we are, if, if we don't accept the help of the non-human world, including the allies, the nature spirits, and 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 you know angels and guides and and ETs and like all of this pantheon of being beyond the human being, and if we don't tap into the capacities that are not recognized by science, especially in the area of healing, then we're basically fighting the enemy on its own turf with their own tools, the tools of force and domination. But there's a lot more than that. And we can um, participate in miracles of transformation when we open up to when we when we open up to the um, realities that we have excluded. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I would even suggest that you know those ghosts encounters and whatnot are are something that happens when a culture is declining from its mythic consciousness or its connection with nature. These sort of ghosts start to come about, and yeah, if industry sufficiently takes over, people, yeah, they tend to. It just they can't conform that to their worldview anymore. So it just it fades from reality in a way, which is uh, in a way what I was trying, uh, struggling to word uh, my question as, you know, this statement really is what I was trying to say is um, when we believe in these things, we give power to their reality, right? It's almost like uh, not that they're simply beliefs, but by believing in them, we're allowed to engage with that side of the world, that natural, magical side of the world that industry seems to separate us from, or at the very least, maybe this separation causes that, you know, it might mm -hmm. not be industry itself more rather the, the separation, but yeah, this is uh, uh, all kind of tailing on the topic of fall, the fallacy of, of human progress and, I'm mm -hmm. wondering if we can address this concept because there is, we, we kind of talked about it earlier, but there is this notion that we've developed to this advanced state or we've reached this greatest potential or we've peaked, you know, and I don't believe that uh, that can be justified anymore that uh, we've, we're in a state of evolution. It seems like we've devolved from uh, what we used to be. Yeah, that's part of the uh, what I call the old story or the story of separation. It, it, as a mythology, it contains a view of the destiny of humanity, where we've come from and where we're going, and and why we're here. And in that story, the the answer to the question why are we here and where are we going 
was to rise above nature, to dominate the rest of life, to go off into space, to upload our consciousness into computers, you know, that that whole technological utopia. Um, and so progress became associated with the advancement of a certain kind of technology and the scientific knowledge that underlies it. Um, and that is a kind of progress, but I see it as more of progress along one axis of development. And there are many, many other axes of development that human beings can explore. So we think of ourselves as very advanced and speak of development as other people copying us and walking the path that we have walked. But as we reach the limits of our particular kind of progress, we've become more and more curious about other ways to develop that other cultures have held. Like what would, it, what would a culture be like if it develops the capacities of dreaming to a very high degree, such as maybe the Aborigines of Australia? Like what if, what if like that was, what if you were raised breathing that all the time? Like, and there were highly developed techniques to access the dream state and to apply it to life. Uh, or what if, what if you know, uh, there's a, a culture that has developed the technologies of, of sound and light and vibration, um, as they say about ancient Atlantis, uh, which had not even developed the wheel yet, but had um, a very highly developed civilization. Uh, I mean, there's just so many, so many capacities of the human being that are ignored or pathologized in our current society that now are they're trying to they're 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 like calling for attention and and it's challenging to develop those because they're not economically rewarded you know you might even end up locked in a psych ward for practicing them but they're becoming more and more necessary in our time mm. yeah it seems like our uh, mystics were labeled schizophrenics and thrown away in insane asylums in a, you know that World War II Industrial Revolution period, um, and yeah, I think there are people that have been pushed to the fringes whose opinions, whose perspectives can add to that change. But yeah, it, it seems like efficiency is the the overall goal when. If our society was geared towards dreaming the same way we were efficiency, what kind of world would this be? I mean, yeah, who knows? Mm -hmm. The Aborigines yeah. were, were certainly an interesting group of people, uh, for sure. I mean, their whole, their whole community was centered around that. There's still tribes in Papua New and Guinea where, where, and yeah, mm -hmm. there's still Aborigines, but there's still, I've heard a story of, in Papua New Guinea, there's a, a tribe, fairly isolated. Every morning, the group, uh, the tribe wakes up, they sleep in a sort of group setting, and they all discuss their dreams together. And they talk about, mm -hmm. you know, what that person dreamed. And based on, you know, the, the, all the dreams that are had that night, that may determine the, you know, agenda of the day and who does what. And that's such a fascinating, uh, you know, 
rubric to live your life by, you know, the group dream yeah. that they're all living in. I wonder if we can extrapolate that <laughs> to a larger society. There's a lot to explore. And uh, a lot of us, you know, individually are starting those explorations. Mm. Well, and, and on that note, what's next for you, Charles? Because you've, you've written quite a few books. Your latest uh, Coronations is more of a compilation of essays, right? So what's next for you? Do you have a, a new book that's in the works or something that you're thinking about covering next? No, I'm, most, I'm mostly writing essays essays now on the Substack. And um, also, like, I'm brewing some um, short films awesome. that I'm, you know, just kind of finding collaborators, um, to, to produce. And, um, I don't know, I'm going to launch a, uh, online kind of an online course, but more of like an activation, um, around parenting because I've had four children and at this point kind of learned a lot about, um, you know, how to parent for a, a more beautiful world. So, yeah, I'm a little bit, as I said before, you know, after COVID, I'm a little bit in a, uh, at a crossroads right now mm. and, and just not really sure exactly what my next direction will be. Right. Yeah. Well, we hope we can, uh, support you in your endeavors with this show and, and maybe even, uh, ingratiate you into this community of, uh, <laughs> people who are, who are definitely, uh, on that same situation of of not being well understood but being well-meaning and uh yeah charles i would love to have you back on to to get into the the parenting conversation i am not a parent myself but uh i certainly have a lot of questions about that so folks can go to your website charleseisenstein.org uh and also your substack could just search substack charles eisenstein i'll put the links for that in the description is there anything else uh you'd like to let the folks know and maybe final thoughts before we wrap up here um i don't know i feel like i've kind of said a lot um <laughs> um no i'll just uh thank you for um taking the time to speak with me and um share our conversation Absolutely. No, the pleasure is mine and I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I wish you well on this uh, new path, this new journey, because, yeah, it is it is a weird situation to be uh, canceled. And, you know, I work for Sam Tripoli and he battles with these people all the time on uh, Twitter and who knows where mm-hmm. else about, you know, uh, free speech. And that's not your battle. You're on on to I would say larger ventures while the, the fight for free speech is important and it predicates, uh, everything that's said, it it definitely, um, is only one facet. And I think we need to be Mm -hmm. setting our sights on the earth and, and, and the family. I'm glad to hear that you're going to be doing that. So anyways, Charles, thank you so much for being here. Uh, one last question before you go, does your family think you're crazy for doing everything that you do, uh, writing the books that you write, writing the essays that you write? Um, some of them do and some of them don't, uh, I'm not the only black sheep in the family. Right on. Well, you're not the only black sheep. We all love each other. Our family's very, very, very loving. And ultimately, you know, even if some of us think others are crazy, we still accept each other. That's awesome.
yeah. that's good to hear. And you're uh, among many black sheeps on this podcast. So welcome to the club and uh, I wish you the best. And for everyone listening, thank you for tuning in and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Before we get to the outro, I just want to give a big shout out to the Hit Kit. Go to hitkit.us and check out all of the awesome, awesome gear that you can use to keep your lead safe and sound. Whether you're smoking blunts, joints, spliffs, whatever it is, you lock them up in the Hit Kit right there with your lighter and they're ready to go whenever you need them. No dropping uh, in between car seats, no uh, fumbling around in your pockets looking for your lighter and no crumbled up broken joints in your pocket. What are you, a crazy person? Don't do that. Keep it safe and sound in a hit kit. It's better than a dude tube. Lasts longer and doesn't stink like a dude tube. Trust me, I've used dude tubes and you gotta throw them out. You know, usually they're, they're disposable. Uh, but these hit kits are not uh, cut back on plastic waste. Don't use those one-hitter containers or, or those uh, pre-roll containers. Get yourself a hit kit. It lasts, and it's uh, tough, durable. It doesn't stink up even if you load it up every day. And uh, some of them have really awesome designs on them. You can even custom design uh, your own. You, know, you can get your name, you can get a logo, whatever you want. You can get Spider-Man, you can get uh, freaking who knows, whatever you want. I don't know why I thought of Spider-Man, um, but either way, either way, check out the Hit Kit. And a big shout out to Garrett. It's a company, a product that he owns, he creates with his own two hands. Uh, he does it all himself, and he was kind enough to send me this awesome Hit Kit called the Dank Bank. It's a basically a safe it's perfect if you have kids you want to keep their little prying hands away from your stash uh, you unlock the dank bank by using a very uh, interesting looking lighter I, you might want to buy a bunch of these lighters in case you lose one because then your stuff's going to be uh, locked up in the in the, the dank bank there but i'm sure Garrett, if he's smart, will start selling these lighters because, uh, yeah, very cool idea. It basically turns your lighter into a key that opens up your stash box. So, uh, anyways, enough about that. Let's get to the rest of the outro. Big shout out to the Hit Kit. You can find them on Instagram at the Hit Kit or go to hitkit.us. Be sure to use promo code CRAZY to save 15% at checkout. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Big shout out to our guest, Charles Eisenstein, for joining me. Like I said in the intro there at the beginning, uh, I booked Charles way back when on Zero after seeing one of his uh, clips on Instagram. Uh, little did I know, he was a Yale University graduate, a place that... Uh, not too far from where I live. And also, we have a, a bunch of things in common. So it was a pleasure to talk to him and, uh, yeah, support him on Substack. He's got a Substack. He's written a bunch of books. Um, and shout out to all of our 
supporters on Substack. We have a bunch of subscribers and four paid subscribers. So shout out to those four uh, helping us build the foundation here. Uh, you can get in now at a very low fee for the founding uh, member tier, and that will give you perks in the long run. I don't know exactly what, but those will be defined uh, moving forward. So go over to the Substack. I am going to set up a few things uh, moving forward, but so far I've been uploading early releases to the Substack, audio and video and uh yeah it's really interesting all of the content that's being posted on substack there is a recent guest on the higher side chats who has a substack that i began to follow uh but i think i have some pretty unique stuff compared to what i've seen on substack so go over there check out what i've been writing get the early releases and of course uh you can get early releases of the video content as well if you prefer to not use rockfin rockfin's kind of like the netflix of this type of content for one price you get a bunch of different content creators uh paid content so from me to whitney webb to eddie bravo sam tripoli uh, a bunch of shows that i've been on like am wake up with steve p we got to get him back on the show soon uh, the Grimerica Show, Charlie Robinson, The Union of the Unwanted, OBDM, uh, The Ripple Effect. There's so many great podcasts on Rockfin. So you can check us out there. Of course, we're on YouTube, and I'm playing around with the YouTube membership stuff. I don't know what's going to come of that. Maybe we'll have some interesting content for Esoteric America on YouTube, and, and we'll put it behind the paywall there for members only. I'm not sure yet, but... YouTube is great. We just put out a new episode of Esoteric America, so be sure to go and check that out on the YouTube channel. Sometimes I release interviews, video interviews from this show on there, but for the most part, uh, our content here on this show is a little too edgy for YouTube's uh, censorship, so uh, we're better off just posting Esoteric America and the rare conversation like the one with Dan Winters or... Uh, Andre Vassan or Carlos Tanner, you know, conversations that were not really that controversial. Uh, they don't pique the interest of the YouTube bots. So anyways, here we are in the supporters section of the outro where I give a shout out to some people who have sent us a one-time donation in the past few weeks because they deserve a shout out. Even if I've giving them a shout out uh, in that last episode i wanted to get the full list and give everybody a shout out so let's start with troy p shout out to you brother i think that's the same troy that i know and love from uh the patreon zoom meetings we're gonna have another zoom meeting uh this week actually coming up on the 22nd so sign up on the patreon you'll be able to sign up and uh be a part of this zoom party that we're gonna be having shout out to troy uh, Patrick S, thank you for your donation. Demetria, thank you so much. David B, thank you. Uh, Jeff Finnup from the Wisconsin Legends, he's been a guest on this show and Esoteric America. Thank you for your support, brother. Uh, C. Wilson, thank you for your support. Uh, John Z, thank you, John. Uh, Charlene, 
who purchased a sticker. I just set, put that in a uh, envelope, and I'm going to be sending that out tomorrow. So thank you, Charlene. Uh, shout out to Chandra, who was at the Mount Shasta contact at the cabin. Apparently, I had been mentioned a few times when uh, favorite podcasts were talked about. So thank you to anybody who attended the uh, contact at the cabin. Mount Shasta with the Grimerica guys and Joe Roop and Owen Hunt and Greg Carlwood who hopefully will be on this show uh, real soon again so yeah that's awesome to hear thank you Chandra for your support and thank you to everybody else that was there at that awesome uh, get together I hope to get to one of those very soon uh, Chris R shout out to you thank you brother for your support uh, Louis B Lewis, thank you. And then, of course, uh, from Buy Me a Coffee at Sweden007. I don't know if you're a spy 007, but uh, maybe you're one of Al's uh, spies. Maybe you're Al. Maybe it's Al. Who knows? Sweden007. Thank you for your support. And a big shout out to everybody who's signed up on Patreon recently. Ever since I started doing those uh, early release trailers, that's seem to to get people interested so i'm glad that uh that's worked and i'm going to keep doing that if you are a supporter of the show you don't have to see those trailers in the rss feed so if you're someone who doesn't like the messy rss feed whatever sign up for the uh, patreon and you'll get a different rss feed with every episode of the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast plus bonus episodes plus old archived episodes uh, and who knows, maybe one day we'll start uh, deleting the archive, the, you know, the older 1 through 100 episodes for supporters only. So get in there while you still can. And uh, yeah, that's about it. That's all I have to say. We got some interesting new articles on the Substack since I mentioned that earlier on a Substack. I wrote an article about the eye in the sky that was seen over... Uh, turkey and syria right before that weird disaster we had a bunch of weird stuff going on uh here with the trains so yeah this conversation with charles happened uh before all that so i don't know there wasn't much mention of that in this conversation but uh coming up we'll have a few more podcasts where that uh, gets brought up my friend michael Wan, who i do a podcast with we just recorded an episode for this show uh tara joined us and we had uh, a very deep conversation that included some things that have been going on uh, contemporarily. So, yeah, look out for that. That'll be out very soon. Uh, Lauren Jeffries, who I've been speaking to a bunch lately, I'm finally going to be releasing my conversation with him uh, on the Patreon, of course, first, and then on the free uh, side of things. But... We have over six to eight hours of conversations uh, that I will not be releasing uh, to the free feed. So if you want to hear that, there's already two conversations posted. The series is titled A Message from Turtle Island. And hopefully Lauren Jeffries uh, won't be the first and only 
uh, Native American elder that we get on for this uh, interview series. So yeah, sign up on the Patreon if you want to catch that. You can also listen to that on Substack. Substack, of course, $8 a month, or you can pay for the whole year up front and get a discount. Either way, I don't care. I'm just happy to have uh, you helping us keep this show on the road i don't know if i should say on the tracks anymore after all these derailments but we're gonna keep this show on the road and uh yeah thank you so much for your support folks couldn't do it without you thank you for listening thank you for tuning into this episode and we'll catch you next time immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now Behind aftermath